are listening to Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. At Radiotopia, we now have a select group of amazing supporters that help us make all our shows possible. If you would like to have your company or product sponsor this podcast, then get in touch. Drop a line to sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Thanks. I want to tell you about another show that I know you'll love called 20,000 Hertz. It's all about surprising stories from the world of sound. They've explored mysteries like what is causing a strange hum coming from an island on the U.S.-Canada border? Why are there radio stations all over the world broadcasting people reading strange sequences of numbers? And what happened to the inventor of stereo sound? The show is completely family-friendly, and every episode is fascinating and full of ear candy. If you like science, mysteries, movies, video games, or history, you'll find lots to enjoy. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz right here in your podcast player. Hertz is spelled H-E-R-T-Z. Once you see their swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. I've spent the pandemic hiding out on an island in France. But mentally, I've been holed up in the 1950s, researching a story about two critics who got caught up in the Cold War. Two critics who were both wittingly and unwittingly working for the CIA. It's a cultural Cold War story, and I hope, dear listener, to share it with you soon. In her famous 1999 book, The Cultural Cold War, Frances Stoner Saunders cracked open this secret history of how the CIA pushed cultural movements like abstract expressionism and free jazz. She's actually one of the very first people I interviewed when I started The Theory of Everything back in 2004. But a lot of the research that's followed in her footsteps trades more in speculation and conspiracy theories. I've spent years looking for a book that could help me understand the intellectual history of the Cold War without dropping me deeper into this labyrinth of CIA rabbit holes. This is why I totally devoured Louis Manon's new book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's a stunning feat of scholarship and history, but not, as he states in the introduction, a book about the cultural Cold War. If you follow Manand, who's a professor at Harvard and a staff writer at The New Yorker, it's been obvious for some time now that he's been working on something big related to the Cold War. And his new book is very big. We're talking almost a thousand pages big. It covers a lot of people you think you might know well, like George Orwell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Susan Sontag, Allen Ginsberg, and a number of art and intellectual movements, like post-structuralism and pop art, that you will know better when you finish the book. I am so thrilled that Louis Menand, or Luke to everyone who knows him, had some time to talk with me about art and thought in the free world. Interestingly, it turns out, Luke also read Francis Stoner Saunders' book back when it came out. I was thought it was very impressive, and so when I started thinking about writing my own book about it, I actually imagined that it, a lot of it would deal with the CIA and covert funding and the sort of whole cultural diplomacy uh, aspect of the period, which, as you say, there have been a lot of books about. And and then honestly, as I got into it, I began to think there's just not much there. And I just found that it didn't it didn't pan out. Um, and so 
then I realized that that's actually not the interesting story. The interesting story was just to do a cultural history of the period. Obviously, we're not going to have enough time to talk about all the individuals and ideas in your book. So let's just get started with George Orwell in 1984. 1984 is where most of the world got its definition of totalitarianism. And you really make it clear just how important this book was. By the late 1950s, Big Brother is almost synonymous with Soviet communism. But you also note that Orwell never set out to write an anti-communism book. He, he believed there were many roads to totalitarianism. So how did this happen? How did this one particular idea or interpretation of 1984 win out over the others? Well, you're right about Orwell's intentions. He was semi-persuaded by an American writer, James Burnham, who wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution, that the future of mass societies might be some form of totalitarianism of the kind that he fictionalizes in 1984. He was warning people, and in particular left-wing intellectuals, not to go down that road, that there was a danger at the end of it. And that was an anxiety that many people had in the late 1940s. That's what Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism is about, that it could happen here. So the warning was picked up by people who worried that the future of liberal democracies would be some kind of communist state like the Soviet Union, and also by people who worried that the future of liberal democracies People on the left who worked that the future of liberal democracies would be some kind of fascist state like Nazi Germany. So, so the general anxiety about totalitarianism spread across the political spectrum. Everybody was anxious about it with a different future in mind. And Orwell's book therefore spoke to everybody because it's very nonspecific ideologically. And then the, the truth is, I did not write about this much in the book, that the novel also benefited, as did Animal Farm from heavy promotion by the American government. Attention, everybody. Attention. Okay, I have to interrupt here because most of this promotion was covert. It was the CIA that sent hundreds of thousands of copies of Orwell's novel into the world. The CIA also secretly funded a 1984 movie that came out in 1956. Long live Big Brother! But in the version that screened in the UK, Italy, and Germany, the CIA changed Orwell's ending. Yeah, in this version, Winston Smith goes out yelling down with Big Brother. The CIA turned 1984 into a warning of Soviet totalitarianism and proposed that death was better than submission. But this was just one interpretation of Orwell's book. I'd, I'd love to get you to talk about how Orwell in 1984 aided some of the intellectuals and artists of the 1950s who wanted to express, you know, the anxiety they felt about mass culture and, you know, how they saw it as leading possibly to an Orwellian future. Yeah, the, the people who were worried about a totalitarian future, like Hannah Arendt, were generally highly critical of mass market commercial entertainment like Hollywood movies and so on. And one feature of the period that's very noticeable obviously now is 
the degree to which intellectuals bought into the sort of avant-garde kitsch binary, this idea that there's avant-garde art or fine art has a critical distance from the state, but that commercial culture is basically a form of propaganda. And obviously, it can be a form of propaganda. It was in Germany. It was, to some extent, in Soviet Union. And But the idea was that Hollywood is just duplicating what the Kremlin is doing to <laughs> Soviet cinema. And a lot of people believe that. So there was this period, in the, really up until the mid-60s, in which that was taken for granted that mass culture, popular culture, was potentially dangerous. And then that all goes away, really, by 1965, it suddenly vanishes. That anxiety more or less disappears. For Manand, these anxieties disappear because a number of forms of American mass culture, like rock and roll, make their way back to the US after being transformed in the cultural capitals of Europe. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. You know, once a grown-up started listening to the Beatles, the game was up. Hey, isn't that Malcolm there? American Pulp Fiction followed a similar path. French New Wave directors like Truffaut and Godard were obsessed with American crime novels, comic books, and movies. And then Hollywood got obsessed with the French New Wave. For Manon, Bonnie and Clyde doesn't just mark the arrival of the American New Wave, it's also the return of ideas that originated in America. The European fascination with American cinema, that's helpful because it shows American intellectuals that Hollywood cinema also has artistic merit or is seen to have artistic merit by filmmakers they can take seriously. Things like that help to change the atmosphere. So that's what Susan Sontag is picking up on in her famous essays in 1965, is this is new sensibility in which you can enjoy all this stuff. You don't have to feel moral or political compunctions about liking it. Let's talk about Paris. You, you really have this unique way in your writing of combining biography, history, ideas, and place. But in the free world, Paris is almost like a main character. Yeah, that's the other thing that, that I got was a little surprised by. I think I assumed that Paris's centrality, pre-war centrality, disappears after 1945. The country was devastated, of course, to some extent by the German occupation and by the invasion, D-Day invasion. And uh, it also had a kind of moral hangover from the extent to which the French were collaborationists. Uh, so I just guess I just assumed that people stopped going there because between about 1890 and 1930 or 40, that was a place where artists from all over the world went to paint, uh, writers went to write, uh, people who wanted to live in a modern way went to live. But that continued after the war, to my, to my surprise. So in your chapter on Sartre, post-war Paris is not just the backdrop for this story about the emergence of existentialism. Again, it's really integral. Can you talk about 
what it was about Paris at this moment that enabled Sartre to articulate his ideas about existentialism and freedom? So what made it possible for Sartre to kind of walk on the stage almost immediately after the after Paris was liberated, which was in August 1944? And I think the answer is what, what I just said, which is that the French wanted a fresh start. They wanted to forget what had just happened, um, both for reasons having to do with trying to revive the economy and put the country back on its feet, but also, as I said, because there was a lot of moral hangover. So Sartre's philosophy is you can start over, basically. He's a philosopher of freedom. He says, just make free choices. Don't let the circumstances dictate what your choice shall be, and then you're free. So there's not a lot of baggage with that philosophy. Um, it, it enables you basically to forget the past. The past no longer has a determining effect on what you should do. You could decide what you want to do today, right now. Um, so I think that was hugely appealing in France. And he comes on the scene in 1945. He gives this talk in Paris called Existentialism as a Humanism in October. And it just begins what Beauvoir called the existentialist offensive. And it kind of sweeps the cultural field for quite a period of time, both in France and in the U.S. They're really dominant figures for three or four years, Sartre and Beauvoir. So I think that's the reason that Paris is the right place for that to happen. Yeah. I guess, you know, thinking about the how this myth of Paris liberating itself, you know, you know, I've I've tried to understand some existentialist ideas, you know, from my own youth to adulthood. And I just, you know, just thinking of how central that might be to the the, to the idea of existentialism itself, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, you know, you uh, yeah. you talk about that in your book um, about how that this is a myth that you know a lot of people were happy to keep propagating, even though they knew it wasn't true. And Sartre did too. That's right. I mean, he knew better, but he felt he wanted to make people feel somehow they'd been resistant when many times they hadn't. Yeah, in a way that almost seems more consequential than the other myth that you know he was a member of the resistance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that his reception in uh, Susan Suleiman wrote a good book about this. His reception in the United States was as a kind of freedom fighter who was on the barricades and so on, which really wasn't true at all. Paris is also the setting for one of the most tragic stories in your book, the encounter between Richard Wright and James Baldwin, two African-American writers who both came to Paris in search of freedom. I don't think I ever realized how central the Cold War was to this tragedy. I think most people know the story that Wright was a kind of sponsor or mentor for James Baldwin in the late 1940s when Baldwin was just 20 years old and just starting out. And Wright met with him, helped him get a fellowship so he could work on his first novel. And then Wright moved to Paris around 1947 permanently. And shortly after, Baldwin moved to Paris. And the first thing he does when he gets to Paris is write an article attacking Richard Dreit's big novel, Native Son, in a little English language magazine in Paris. Uh, to whose editors Richard Wright had introduced him. Oh, man. Uh, and, and then he, a year after that, he published, I think a year or two years after that, he publishes another attack on Native Son and Partisan Review. And perversely, from the point of view of anybody trying to say, what's the smart thing for a young black writer to do? It actually works for him. And then he publishes his first collection of essays, Notes of a Native Son, appropriating the title of 
Richard Wright's famous novel, as if to say, I'm the native son, not Richard Wright. I can explain black experience in America better than this guy can. And by the end of the 60s, Wright dies in 1960. In 1962, uh, a French writer, Michel Fabre, is trying to write a biography of Richard Wright. He comes to the United States. Everybody says, nobody cares about Richard Wright anymore. It's all about James Baldwin now. You use the word overdetermined to, to sum up the relationship between Wright and Baldwin, which I just love so much. Um, but I want to talk about a moment when they are in agreement. This was at the Congress of Black Writers and Artists, which took place in Paris in September of 1956. And a number of the speakers at this Congress were advancing a concept, negritude, that was in many ways not just a turn towards Africa, but also a rejection of the West. Can you talk about why both Baldwin and Wright rejected this idea, and did they have the same reasons? I think they did, actually. And at the conference, one line that was taken was, I guess we would call a pan-Africanist line, which is that all black people around the world share a certain culture that originates in Africa. The term negritude dates from the 1930s. It was coined by Aimé Césaire. It was from Martinique. And who was, of course, an important figure after the war in the in the post-colonial uh, era. And both Baldwin and Wright rejected that because they felt whatever you could say about Martinicans or West Africans and so on, it just wasn't true of American blacks, that the black American experience was just different from the experience of colonized peoples. Uh, and they didn't want to be identified with that. It's complicated because, of course, decolonization as a post-war phenomenon, which is sort of the big story here, was a force behind the American Civil Rights Movement, got the federal government more engaged than it wanted to get in that. Um, but Baldwin and Wright felt that the black experience was different in America, and they also were both modernists. They both believed that the answer to oppression is to you know, use the tools of the West, which are the tools of reason and technology. Uh, and they both believed that. Um, and they both identified with the West in the Cold War, Baldwin as well as Wright. So I think their reasons are actually quite similar. I mean, that's what makes the whole the whole feud so bizarre is that they weren't aren't really that far apart. They did see eye to eye on, on the Pan-Africanist thing. L'écrivain américain James Baldwin, présent depuis le premier jour à la Sorbonne. I recently watched a documentary on the Congress called Lumière Noires, and in it, the writer Carol Phillips says something pretty intriguing about Baldwin. The conference is important to most people, I think, in the classroom in America, in universities, because of Baldwin's essay, Princes and Power. I'm not sure without Baldwin's essay, to be honest, whether that many people would be aware of the conference. You know, it was completely uncovered in the American press. I couldn't find a single story about it. Uh, so it, it's true. I think that that essay Baldwin wrote, which was published in Encounter, was, was how most people in the U.S. heard about it. I mean, I don't think that Baldwin and Wright's views had a lot of impact on people like Fanon, uh, who's sort of the important figure at the conference. But yeah, Baldwin, yeah, Baldwin did have a lot of influence on shaping perceptions of the conference. Here's where I feel like we just have to mention that the magazine that Baldwin was reporting on the conference for, Encounter, was a CIA front. Just as I think we need to point out that the CIA also 
funded Richard Wright on his reporting trip to the Bandung Conference in 1955 because, as you note in your book, Wright was extremely hostile and dismissive of the post-colonial ideas that were discussed at Bandung. He also, I think, wildly misrepresented some of these things that he covered. Uh, he, you know, he was anti-racist and he couldn't tolerate the idea of a kind of racially based nationalism, which he felt a lot of these decolonizing states were adopting. I don't think that was really fair, but that was the line that he took. So he's a complicated figure. There's a whole, which I don't get into because I don't, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it if I tried, but there's a sort of conspiracy theory that his early death was a result of some kind of nefarious poisoning or something. Yeah. I don't know. His daughter believes that he was killed. Yeah. Um, many of his friends and colleagues did. Yeah. Um, and as you know, Island of Hallucinations, the unfinished novel that Wright was working on at the time of his death, it was all about the CIA trying to infiltrate and destroy uh, African-American expats or exiles in Paris. Yeah. But I guess at this point, we might as well just talk about the last chapter in your book where you do take us behind the scenes, where you do show us the CIA octopus in the rabbit hole, so to speak. I'm just going to quote you here. Um, the CIA owned or subsidized more than 50 newspapers, news services, radio stations, and periodicals, most of them abroad. American publishing houses, including Putnam's, Ballantine, and Doubleday, unknowingly published books that had CIA involvement. The CIA seems to have funneled money to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Now, all this was revealed in a number of exposés in the late 60s, not just in underground magazines like Ramparts, but the New York Times as well. And I'm really curious what your memories of this time were and how your initial reactions informed or didn't inform how you decided to approach this stuff in your book. Yeah, so I was, I guess, 15 years old in 1967, but I was sort of plugged into that, that what was going on just because my parents were very interested in politics. Um, and they were very liberal, uh, so uh, they were all over the CIA stuff when it started coming out. It actually, started coming out in 1965. That's when the New York Times uh, outed the Congress for Cultural Freedom as a CIA creature. Um, interestingly, nothing really came of that story until the Ramparts piece in 1967 which was about the National Student Association. And that's the story that pulled the thread that unraveled the whole tapestry of covert funding, which turned out to be, as I said, incredibly elaborate and global. They just funded all kinds of political and cultural organizations that people assumed were independent. And I end the book with that, along with Vietnam, because that's really the moment when you look back and you think, what was really going on here? Yeah, after I finished your book, I finally realized what my problem with all the CIA stuff is. It's that the revelations are just too massive. You know what I mean? They don't just reveal truths. They also obscure truths, which makes it super frustrating if you want to pin down what some of these writers and artists and critics were doing when they were working for the CIA during the Cold War. Yeah. You know, what conclusion can you draw? That it was all a sham? That doesn't seem right. Um, that it, they were all puppets? That doesn't quite seem right either. 
I list all the people, both American and British intellectuals, most of whom are liberal or left people who contributed to Encounter, and they didn't have to be told what to say because they were saying exactly what the government wanted them to say. And that just exposed the sham of American intellectual culture, that these people imagined they had some distance from capitalism and militarism and anti-communism in the American state and so forth, which they must have regarded sort of as crude entities. And it turned out that they were actually playing on the team with them. Louis Menand is the author of The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. Get it wherever you get your books. The Theory of Everything is produced by me, Benjamin Walker. Special thanks this time around to David Levine. The Theory of Everything is a proud founding member of Radiotopia, home to some of the world's best podcasts. Find them all at radiotopia.fm. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery's American History Tellers. In our latest series, we explore the emergence of a covert network of secret routes and safe houses known as the Underground Railroad, which worked to shepherd fugitive slaves to freedom in the decades before the Civil War. Listen to American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.